As we did last week, I'd like to give a content warning for child sexual abuse discussions. Um, we're not going to get into detail or anything, but it is present in the novel, um, hinted at here in the movie. So we will discuss it a little bit. Just be aware. Books are so interior. And we've talked, you know, throughout this course of this podcast, things that books do really well. You get the internal thoughts and you get a multi-sensory experience, but through your imagination, because books sort of live at least like 50-50 in your imagination, you kind of have to do the set dressing yourself, right? Like the building blocks of what it looks like to you are already in your mind. Which can be an advantage and a disadvantage. Right. You're drawing on these things you've seen before. You're drawing on people you've seen before. You're drawing on your personal life experience to help kind of co-create the story, which makes it really intimate and personal. But a film is by definition more external than that. It is it is seeing a show. It is a it is literally a team production that is putting on a display. And one of the things that that should be doing is showing you things you haven't seen before. Friends to episode 240 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And I'm writer Luke Elliott. And this week we discuss Tomas Alfredson's 2008 film, Let the Right One In. My hand is on the glass, James. <laughs> Do you <laughs> Leaving a print. Yeah, well, we're talking through a screen, so right, I can literally yeah. put my hand on the screen and leave a print and we can watch it slowly fade like our lives. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, this this movie, I did not remember how much I enjoyed this film. And yeah. this is just like really solidified this movie in my in my mind and in my memory of just a fantastic international horror film. Yeah. Amazing. It's got some fantastic filmmaking in it, which yeah. I think I'm just more aware of now. And I was yeah. able to appreciate a lot of the sh- like just interesting shot selection going on and um, just everything was so well crafted. And like this movie has such this oppressive atmosphere and the starkness of this, you know, 80s Sweden, where I feel like he, he, you know, the filmmaker really captured something essential about this time period and this place. There's this, like, the architecture is all brutalist, and, like, the the snow is everywhere. It's, like, all over. There's no, like, sidewalks. It's all covered mm-hmm. in snow. Everything's frozen. The characters are always super cold, you can tell. And it, it, I think that seeps through the screen into me and i i thought that's great like a way to use a setting that is is at least to american audience so unique um and it's a period piece and um i don't know you believe that these are kids who are going to sit outside in the literal snow to play a fucking rubik's cube game (laughs) like like so much for so much for nintendo like you got your fucking rubik's cube in the snow And it's like it's bleak and it feels like oh, yeah. devoid of culture like we talked about a little bit. There's not a lot going on. It's it's very like new new development, all the things we talked about last week to create that setting and to be as faithful as it was to the novel because a lot of this comes straight from the novel. Absolutely. And I don't think you'll be surprised to hear because I'm sure you saw his name, but uh, Jean 
Asvide Lindquist, who who was the author of the novel, wrote the screenplay here as well and was heavily oh, you know cool. involved in this process. So Glad so they were kind of working hand in hand. That always makes me happy to hear. Um, okay, so before we get into the episode, I just want to say a couple of you know announcements here at the start. First off, this episode is a Patreon selection from our quarterly polls that we run every quarter, and we'll, we'll continue to do that going forward. And uh, if you are a patron, you can vote on these polls. And then um, this one beat out Fight Club, I think, just barely. Um, so, you know, join up and then we'll be doing another one at the end of the year. And if you'd like to cast your vote on what you want to hear us uh, cover next, that's the best way to do it. Um, also, I'm going to be at Worldcon in Chicago. I'm flying out tomorrow. <laughs> I'm excited for it. I'm going to be on multiple panels, uh, a couple panels about podcasting, another panel about adaptations with John Scalzi and Fonda Lee. Um, and I'm going to be on, uh, or I'm going to do, and I'm going to do a reading, um, while I'm at the con, I'm going to have ink to film swag. I'm going to have some stickers and, um, uh, bookmarks and pins, uh, you know, you can put on your little badge, like it, lots of little fun things. So if you do see me, uh, or if you, uh, would like to reach out to me and you're going to be at the con, I can make sure you get some of those. Also, if you come to any of my, uh, panels or my reading i'll absolutely be giving those out so that'd be cool to see you and uh let me know and just for clarity's sake he's his the reading is his material yeah the reading is my own material that's a good and point. we're recording on a tuesday but this episode will release on thursday and you're currently there yeah yeah if you're listening to this i am at chicago Worldcon. so yeah come find me um yeah i'm so glad that you picked up on all of the the filmmaking techniques that are being employed because i i think this... well, i don't know about all of them but i i picked up on a lot of them and you know i love i love me a, a movie that has patience and is willing to let a scene breathe and i feel like this movie does a lot of that and it pays dividends like atmosphere in a in a good horror movie is like you know indispensable and i love to see you know this filmmaker lean into it yeah, and my like little emo kid heart like can relate to this, right? Like imagine seeing this like I mean it came out in 2008, but seeing it maybe a little younger and like how it's just it's saying a lot about youth and growing up and the things you don't know and the things you learn along the way. And it's, you know, one of the characters is a lot older but has maybe the temperament of a younger character. It's it's really interesting. Like ha- we talked about this a little bit with a vampire character. Like what what's being said about growing up and and transforming and being the person you want to be. Yeah, so I, I guess we'll try and keep it fairly spoiler free. Obviously, we just talked about there's this vampire, um, but I think that's you know if you know anything about this movie, you know there's a vampire in it. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll save our more spoiler talk for a little bit from now. But if it's not already clear, we do really like this movie. I find it really interesting. Um, there's some there's so many themes and metaphors that you can pull out of the material that we talked a lot about last week. So if you haven't listened to our book episode, I would highly recommend checking it out. We also delve into a lot of the like really tricky subject matter because the book goes into a lot more detail with it. Honestly, Um, there's like just a lot, just more explicit scenes. Um, And we talk about whether or not that's even something that should be in books. And like we have that debate. So if you're curious about that kind of stuff, check that out. because We probably won't rehash too much of it here. We also talked last week about gendering this character, which oh, yeah. is this character, Ile. It was kind of unclear to us in the novel how the, the character identified. Yep. And so we felt that as there's a 
moment of reveal that happens in the in the novel and that was sort of our key to to take like okay that's the gender of this character yeah. and it's a little tricky here in the film as well well let's make it clear so in the in the book it's uh she her pronouns up until the point of the reveal and then uh it switches to he him now i guess we're still before spoilers so i won't explain who we're talking about we're not going to follow that same path this week you want to explain why Right. So in hearing the director talk about the film after the fact, he refers to the character as a she. Yeah. So although there there is, I believe, some maybe some translation stuff going on there. Yeah, it's a bit it's still a bit unclear um, what this character actually identifies as. But there are a couple of things that are said, like, um, I'm not I'm not a girl or I'm not right something like that and that sort of can be have a dual meaning so as far as we're concerned we're going to refer to this character as the director does and assume that he's doing it with the best of intentions and understands the character yeah so yeah just that caveat out of the way so you're not confused as i was talking about with these metaphors and sort of themes one of the themes that i thought was a little more present here that is i think is in the book but just was highlighted here for me is this idea of innocence being taken at a young age and then how that will affect you throughout the rest of your life. I see that present in the character of Elay, and then I see that at the potential for that in Oscar. And so much of this is about childhood trauma and um, and then also the like legacies of violence, similar to what we talked about with like a Stephen King. But this is a this is a pretty frequent topic especially in horror but like the idea of this like inescapable like passing on of trauma from generation to generation and i think elay also represents that in a certain way so like there's so much to unpack here and the reason i'm bringing it up now before we get into the spoiler section is i just want to say like i didn't even like fully appreciate how rich the story really is if you start thinking of it in these terms and trying to figure out what it could be saying and what it could be trying to unpack and like there's all these different angles you could take you could read it as a discussion about innocence, but you could also, you know, read it completely different other ways, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, last week, just to rehash a little bit, we talked about like the ways that the novel seemed like there was maybe some like malicious intent. And then there's also the angle that you could take where everything's more innocent and it's more of just a love story. Oh, you're talking about with the character of Eli. Yeah, we might have to wait on some of that because <laughs> spoilery. But I did want to mention specifically that in the in the film, it felt to me that it was much more the angle of there's some pure, innocent love, young love and and finding of that in this film that I think was like a bit more ambiguous in, in the in the novel. I have a few specific ways that it might not fit that. And but I'm going to wait until we get to spoilers. Um, so I think it's time to move into filmmaker. I, I don't have a lot more other I guess, spoiler-free thoughts other than just to say, I like this movie a lot. This is my second time seeing it. I've seen the Matt Reeves Americanized version. I want to watch that one again, honestly, because I don't remember it super well either. But I just feel like this was my favorite of the two when I saw them both. And I kind of doubt that it's going to be able to usurp this because I think this movie has just gone up in my estimation on the second viewing, kind of like you were saying. So um, whenever that happens, I'm like, yeah, I don't know if the other one's going to really be able to, to rise to this. And also, like, in an inherently Swedish story, yeah. we're getting the the viewpoint of of people who have lived it. and Authentic you know, I, and I just, appropriate. It yeah. feels very... And, and it feels 
like the kind of thing that's really difficult to recapture because it's so specifically to this person's voice. Do you remember if the other one's in Sweden or was it was it moved to America? I think it was in America. Yeah, see, and, and that's just not going to be the same. It's just not going to be the same. And the way that this film burst on the scene too in like 2008. Yeah, with like that's pretty rare for a movie, kind of out of nowhere, especially and then, in that in that time period. And then took the entire world by storm. Like it, you know, it's the kind of film that. There, it does happen, and it's definitely happened historically. I don't want to say it's it's uncommon, but a lot of people have seen this international film. Yeah, because this is probably before like streaming was a big thing, right? Two thousand eight. Around, yeah, I think it was starting to get big around like two thousand eight, or at least it was starting around two thousand. Yeah, so yeah. like I mean, nowadays, yeah, stuff goes to street. You know, stuff is on Netflix. Everybody has access yeah. to it. It's very easy. This is the kind of film that went to like international film festivals and did extremely well. Yeah, I feel like this was word of mouth. Like I heard about this from fans of horror who were like, "This movie coming out of Sweden, you got to see it." Like, you know, a lot of people saying things like, "I know it's got subtitles, but it's worth it." You know, because a lot of people don't like watching subtitle movies, so. And I think, you know, streaming has been good for that. I think a lot more people, you think of something like Squid Game that completely took over the world yeah. for a little while there. Like people are becoming more accustomed to yeah. international, which I think is amazing, the more yeah. like interconnected storytelling. But this was at a time where it was not as frequent. I think it's safe to say, even though it did happen. For people who aren't massive film fans, right. because big film fans have always been like, this has always been of huge, course. This, this international market. And uh, but it, it like I said, it came on the scene and it just completely blew up. And so let's talk about the filmmaker a little bit and, and okay. sort of where all this came about. I don't know anything about him. I don't. Yeah, I'm really curious. Yeah. So Hans Christian Tomas Alfredson is a Swedish film director who is best known internationally for directing the 2008 vampire film Let the Right One In and 2011 espionage film Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Oh, wow. Wait, yeah. is that the one with Gary Oldman? It has Gary Oldman. Oh, so he did that? Yeah. English language. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Great film. I actually really like that film. I, I think it's it. worth a revisit. I, I think it's a, I think that one's based on a book. I think so too. Yeah. So Alfredson has received the Gulbage Award for Best Direction twice. In 2005 for Four Shades of Brown and in 2008 for Let the Right One In. I mean, should. This movie looked great and, and seemed like really well directed to me. Yeah. And this is like the Swedish like Academy Awards, basically. Okay. He's won Best Direction twice. So big deal in, in Sweden for sure. And interestingly, he, he's the son of director and actor Hans Alfredsson and brother of director Daniel Alfredsson. Um, Daniel Alfredsson directed the second and third films, Swedish language versions of um, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest, The Girl Who, yeah. wh I don't remember the third one, but that trilogy. Played with Fire? Played with Fire, maybe? Yeah, Played with Fire is one of them. So uh, he directed the second the second and third. I've actually never seen those original Swedish versions. That one's an interesting one. One day we're going to tackle The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And I want to, yeah. I'm going to be really curious to see what I actually prefer because I like Fincher so much and I think his version is actually underrated. But caveat, I haven't seen the original and like this original movie like is so good. Like I don't know. Like I'm curious to see. I remember long ago, um, early-ish in the podcast, friend of the podcast, Colton from Watch Review Repeat wrote in, I had an opinion that the that the original Swedish version was better and he disagreed. He felt that the Fincher version was better. And it's crazy to think because again, sort of a I don't know if that it's inherently a Swedish story, but it was written Yeah. I believe by Swedish. No, yeah, the uh, the yeah, the author Swedish, I think. And then the idea that maybe an American version by Fincher because he's such a strong visionary director might might overcome like all of the obstacles to be better like that's pretty crazy i'd like to i'd like to check that out yeah. at some point and yeah. kind of compare and contrast let us know if you'd like to hear that 
So after finishing the work on the Let the Right One In, Alfredson publicly announced that he would not make any more films in the foreseeable future. He stated that he had grown tired with the Swedish film and television industry, which he considered drained of power, courage, and gravity. Wow. So this is between 2008's Let the Right One In and 2011's Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Something did not rub him the right way in the release of this movie it seems like which is crazy because like i said very well received yeah but i mean he must have gotten some pushback or something because that that like you know that they're watered down and you know like it seems like he must have hit some controversy or something with this movie must have yeah or just like the yeah some powers that be were trying to maybe control him a little more than he felt he wanted to oh maybe i wonder if there's like uh if studio forced some stuff into this film i don't know or out of this film i don't know So while he received several offers from Hollywood producers, he was reluctant to leave his home, children, and colleagues. But in March of 2009, he announced that he would partake in a big international film production. In 2009, he signed to direct a film adaptation of Jean Le Carre's 1974 novel, Tinker, Tailor, Soldier, Spy. Another one we could do. I would really like to at some point, too. And uh, this film premiered in 2011 at the Venice International Film Festival. In 2012, after the release of... Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, it was announced that he had acquired the rights to make a film adaptation of Astrid Lindgren's novel, The Brothers Lionheart, which I'm not familiar with. No, I never heard of that. But Alfredson was going to direct and Jean Ajvide Lindquist was going to write the screenplay for it. So getting our our duo that we're currently covering back together yeah. for another film in 2012. But as far as I could tell, that film was, you know, got stuck in development oh. and, and was never released. Bummer. So kind of a bummer. And then um, the reason I'm saying all this is because he kind of said he wanted to leave the film industry, but his most recent project in 2017, at least film film project, uh, he directed a film called The Snowman and it was widely panned. Oh, I remember that movie coming out. It's got Michael Fassbender in it. Yeah, I never saw it, but I remember people did, yeah. not, did not like that movie. <laughs> uh, despite the all-star cast and popular book series, uh, the movie was based on, it was derided by critics and received a 7% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow. What happened there? Brutal. I don't I don't know. Couldn't tell you. And I haven't seen the film, so I don't know anything about it. I do know that there are plenty of films out there that have very low Rotten Tomato scores that are actually worth seeing. So it could have been just experimental and just didn't hit the right audience at the right time. And maybe the fault lies a little bit with the subject matter. It's hard to say because I haven't read the book either. So I don't know. So in doing reading and research for this project, I've read that Jean Ajvide Lindquist and Alfredson both kind of dislike vampire stories you know which is interesting to note when you when you write a vampire story you would think that you would at least have some sort of i think i assume that they do to an extent but i think their point being is they were tired with the format they were tired with the way that vampire stories were being told and that's why this film really doesn't feel like a vampire story in most senses it's exploring topics that come from being a vampire but it's much more centered around what some of the topics we've been talking about like coming of age and in like really bleak environments with violence around and and loss of innocence, you know, yeah, there's, I saw this quote, I think I sent it to you where uh, John Carpenter was praising this movie. Yeah. He was talking about how it, you know, it was funny because it was like a referencing, like uh, someone asked him a question about like modern horror movies or like recent (laughs) horror movies. And this was the one he pulled and I'm like, not really that modern anymore. (laughs) Carpenter was, you know, 14 years old, but okay. (laughs) <laughs> uh, anyway, he was he was praising it because he, yeah, I think one of the things he commented on was how it kind of reinvigorated the j- vampire genre. And I can't remember if that was his quote or someone else's I read, but it makes sense because vampires as a genre, similar to zombies or werewolves or any of the like ma- like very identifiable monsters that have sort of been done to death, 
we're at the point where it's really difficult to do interesting new things with them, but not impossible. And sometimes, you know, that can look like this. Sometimes that can look like taking something and making it humorous or, you know, taking it in some sort of unexpected way. Um, and yeah, I think that's what they're touching on there when they say they don't like vampire movies. They're probably talking about vampire as a sort of cliche within horror that people go to when they think about vampires. They're not as interested in that, but they decided to do something here that is very different. And I think va- vampirism is just a vehicle for that. So, I, you know, I think it does work in that way. I love, you know, seeing these two artists work together and, and having this shared connection. And it seems that, you know, having the two of them come together was was not easy. Alfredson wanted to get involved with a film adaptation of this material. Um, and there was apparently like 40 different people who all wanted to adapt this project. So it was like competitive to get wow. to get a chance. Um, the film project started in late 2004 when John Nordling, a producer at the production company EFTI, contacted Ajvide Linquist's publisher to acquire the rights to the film. At first, the publisher apparently like kind of laughed when, when the, he called and he said that he was like 48th they put on the list. But then but then they called Johnny Ajvide Lindquist directly, and it turned out that he and Alfredson had a lot of the same ideas of what kind of film they want to make, and it wasn't about the money. It was like the right uh, constellation is what they say. That's cool, man. That That's like honestly kind of the ideal situation in some ways, right? Like having options as an author and being able to say like who, who am I most interested in pursuing this with, who seems to share my vision. Um, you know, we talked about this with Sandman recently, like finding the right person to work with if you want that more collaborative adaptation process and um we're we're seeing it work i'm not saying it's the only way it can work we've seen other ways (laughs) but um it is a way that does seem to work pretty consistently and like i don't think it's a bad idea to have the author heavily involved um as long as they're not someone who's gonna (laughs) you know be a control freak and drive it off the rails then you're probably gonna be you know fine yeah, I mean, I th- and I think it'd be hard not to be, right? If it's your baby that you've created this story and to watch someone, even if you're working on the screenplay, like decisions are going to be made that you might not agree with. So you have to have, you have to have really good tastes, I think, and you have to be able to see the good in changes. Well, and, and this is something I was thinking about recently because I'm going to be on this panel talking about adaptations and like, you know, why? Why do we do adaptations and what are they good for kind of thing and, and um, the differences in medium and thinking about how authors you know some authors fully get film as a medium but i think it's safe to say other authors maybe they fully understand like what makes novels work and are masters at that and they like movies but that doesn't mean that they understand the creation of movies and like what is necessary to make a good film and that disconnect that little bit of a gap in like uh, expertise and knowledge can sometimes I mean, I don't want to go keep going to Stephen King, but like we've seen some Stephen King adaptations that are quote unquote faithful and Stephen King has been really happy with and been like, yeah, this is you know my version of this thing I want. And the movie isn't really that good um, because sometimes it being faithful doesn't translate super well and things need to be changed um, because each medium is, is, is very different. And if I can't just for a second, I was thinking about this and I think I'll talk about it on the panel, but books are so interior and we've talked, you know, throughout this course of this podcast, things that books do really well. You get the internal thoughts and you get a multi-sensory experience, but through your imagination. Because books sort of live at least like 50-50 in your imagination. 
you kind of have to do the set dressing yourself, right? Like the building blocks of what it looks like to you are already in your mind. Which can be an advantage and a disadvantage. Right. You're drawing on all these things you've seen before. You're drawing on people you've seen before. You're drawing on your personal life experience to help kind of co-create the story, which makes it really intimate and personal. But a film is by definition more external than that. It is it is seeing a show. It is a it is literally a team production that is putting on a display. And one of the things that that should be doing is showing you things you haven't seen before, showing you images, making you hear things, making you feel things. Um, you got the full court press between a score and between performance and all these different actors at the top of their game and artists at the top of their game. You know, cinematography, all these like language of cinema, like the eye of a cinematographer you know, unless you're one yourself, like you probably don't have that in your mind. So you're not picturing things that way. And it's cool to see that through another person's view. So in the adaptation process, you're putting on a show of the story and that show of the story is really cool thing. And it's, but, and it serves a different purpose and it reaches a different audience. Um, both have a lot of value, but I think, um, authors don't always understand the differences or at least like fully appreciate the differences in medium. And so they might sometimes get in their own way, I think. But it doesn't seem to be the case in, in this story, especially with the the adaptation of a, of a script as well. He's writing the screenplay, which is a different writing format, different way of delivering information and, and like, you know, evoking emotion. Well, and he, he had worked in the film industry. We talked about that a little bit. So it seems like he has the background. Yeah, I, I, I'm saying all of this, but like, as V.D. Lindquist seems like he is not that he he understands the differences in medium and they made a cool movie together. So, it, yeah, this this is not a problem here. But I'm just also I, I guess the reason I pointed out is it's like not a, not every author can do this just because you can write a novel doesn't mean you can write a screenplay doesn't mean you can adapt your own work. Um, so as much as we like to see it, I think that we got to like pump the brakes a little bit on the idea that like the author should be like god king of <laughs> or queen of, of of their project right and like control everything because sometimes that's not always ideal it just doesn't guarantee you a slam dunk right. it's like yeah it could be it could be very cool like you know sanderson's gonna have this huge hand and hit whatever he has adapted and we'll see if that's a good thing or a bad thing. it kind of underestimates the ability of the filmmakers right and the skill of the f- filmmakers a little bit and like assuming that the author always knows best but it's like no they want to work with someone who actually knows better than them about film that's why you work with someone like that <laughs> yeah so i i was reading that linquist insisted he was writing the screenplay himself and alfredson um was skeptical at first uh-huh. of having the original author do the adaptation right. but found the end result very satisfying um you know many of the minor characters and events from the books were removed and focused directed primarily on the love story between the two leads of course the idea of cutting some of these more extreme things like there's a pedophile like main character that we're in the the mind. Yeah, I think of. he's still a pedophile here, but we're just not in his mind, uh, Hawken, and we're not as like close to. It. We don't see a lot of the more explicit scenes that are in the book. Yeah, definitely. And e- e- even though they are there, they're toned down like by yeah. a lot. Um, Alfredson felt that the film couldn't deal with the seriousness of a theme of pedophilia in a satisfying manner, while also like keying in on the things that the film really wanted to tell, which was the relationship between these characters and the elements of like, you know, children and, or at least like a child dealing with larger issues and growing up and that kind of thing. So like to try to cram both in, I think that's a tall task. And I think that honestly, like that, this is what I was remembering when we read the story is that this wasn't in the film. And 
as much as I like sort of felt that the exercise in the, in the novel was, was worth doing maybe in, in a, in a dark sense, uh, he like kind of getting rid of that does focus the film in for me on, on some of the most important parts. Yeah. I think losing it, um, focuses the film. I think it, it, you know, makes it have a, have a sort of, I mean, it's like what hour 50 minutes. Like it's a nice runtime. Um, doesn't overstay its welcome. The book is pretty long, uh, comparatively and has a lot of these sort of subplots that get cut out. I did miss some of them just because I, I think they have a lot of merit within the book. So before we get away from the filmmaker, I wanted to talk about his reason for wanting to adapt this, this story. Okay. A friend introduced this story and he normally doesn't like to receive books. He likes to sort of go and find them on his own. Cause it's like a very private thing for him, which I respect. I yeah. think that's, that's cool to be able to like kind of curate your own. What you you're got If you got a friend whose taste, you know, who knows your taste and whose taste you trust, you gotta, you gotta lean yeah. on that, man. Yeah, I think so. Um, so Albertson felt specifically the depiction of bullying in the novel. He, he identified with it. He said, it's very hard and very down to earth, unsentimental. I had some period when I grew up, when I had hard times in school. So it really shook me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, honestly, a lot of the scenes are pretty harrowing here. It does remind me a lot of some of the stuff we get into in Stephen King. You know, what it also reminded me of um, it reminded me of a real life incident that I ha- that I had. Um, oh, really? Yeah. It, it, this kind of mimics something that happens in the movie, but it's not really a spoiler because it's not a big deal. But um, in the movie... Oscar's pants get thrown in a urinal at one point and he has to walk home in shorts. It's actually really shitty because it's so cold and the movie's done such a good job of establishing how cold it is. Um, but it just reminded me, and this is actually something that like I've always remembered, which shows that like it sticks around. Um, when I was in middle school, um, while I, cause like it was like one of the times where you actually have to change into gym clothes and go do gym. When I came back to the locker room, my pants had been like pulled through the like there's these little gaps in the because these were like shitty lockers that had little like wire mesh somehow they had like pulled them through the gaps and they got my pants out of the gaps and threw them in the garbage and it got like a bunch of crap on it um and so i ended up having to wear my short i just wore my shorts the rest of the day which like we're in florida it's not that end of the world (laughs) it's just you know you're wearing gym shorts which is like you feel shitty about um, at school. Plus I'm like, I was really nervous cause I think I was in the seventh grade. It was like my first year in middle school. And so that's always stuck with me. And the other thing that stuck with me about it is it was so weird as I had no idea who did it. And it was, com- it was like a completely random act of bullying done against me for a reason I don't understand or know. It was just maybe cause I was like nerdy or cause I was new and they were older. Like, I don't know. I don't know who did it. And to this day, like, I feel like I've always been kind of paranoid about like leaving my clothes anywhere because I'm, like, worried that's going to happen again. Like, I was realizing that, like, that has really stuck with me as this, like, weird, like, random act of bullying that just targeted me out of the blue. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's, like, it's like the kind of thing where, like, you know, somebody gets their house, like, covered in toilet paper or, like, eggs thrown at their house and stuff. Just, like, kids will be dicks and do yeah. that kind of stuff to just random, just, like, throw themselves at the void and just be rude to whoever, yeah. you know? I mean, I was embarrassed. I remember being embarrassed, you know, yeah. and I'd have to tell people why I was wearing gym shorts, you know? Right. It's like, why are you wearing gym? Like, you know, it's like sitting in class wearing gym shorts is kind of weird, right? Was there like an eventual like vampire savior of any kind? I wish. That, man. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> you were thinking about it. You were like, hey, yeah, I was I was, you know, stabbing in the air. <laughs> <laughs> so real quick before we leave behind this sort of background, there's a couple of notes I found when I was reading about the book and its adaptation process that I thought are interesting and we should talk about here. 
for one, obviously there was a 2010 version, American version, which we'll probably talk about more when we actually cover it. Um, but there was also a couple other adaptation things that happened with this. There is a stage production. Uh, it looks like it was in the National Theater of Scotland that was done. Um, there was also a comic book series in April of 2010 that was announced by uh, Dark Horse Comics, which are which featured a four-issue comic book limited series. Uh, the series was titled Let Me In Crossroads and was a prequel to the American film. The first issue has Abby, which is what they renamed the character, and her guardian facing a ruthless real estate tycoon who wants to steal their home and was released in 2010. Um... John Ajvide Lindquist said, quote, nobody has asked me about doing a comic and I think the project stinks. I'm looking into this matter and hope that they have no right to do this. Um, he later told fans that he learned that he had unwittingly sold the rights to the comic to be made. He said that the producers had misled him about the contract he had signed for the adaptation of his work. So that's unfortunate. But yeah, like he there was this there was this comic book prequel made that he was not a fan of and didn't even realize and this is the kind of stuff that like you got to ha- make sure that you have a good agent who is explaining to you very specifically what kind of rights you're giving up um, and what kind of stuff can come of it um, and then you know unfortunately that happened and then the other thing is that we've talked about we kind of mentioned is that there's this television series so in 2015 a studios confirmed that they were going to be uh, adapting the novel in a television series and that the series would air on A&E in August of 2016 TNT ordered a pilot, which I'm not sure if those two companies are like connected or whatever, but um, TNT eventually decided not to produce the series and it was shopped around. Finally, 2021 Showtime has ordered a pilot, much better home for this in my opinion. And that has been in production and it looks like it is going supposed to premiere as of what I'm seeing in October of 2022. So not too far away from now. Yeah. So I watched the trailer this morning. There's a trailer for the, the show. Yeah. I didn't know that. It does not look good to me, but Uh-oh. I could be very wrong. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't look like it's capturing what I liked about this story yeah. in the first place. That's what I'll say. It's probably Americanized, I would imagine. Yeah. yeah. We'll see. Oh, like, what you know, what are they drawing influence from? Are they the, the Matt Reeves film or, you know, we, we'll see. Yet to be seen. I, you know, I'm judging a book by its cover. Um, I'll have to check it out before I, before I, you know, pass judgment. I'll have to check out that, that trailer, though. I'm curious. So yeah, I'm going to start by reading a bit of plot here. This is going to be full spoilers from now on, so you know, check out if you're not looking for that. Oscar, a meek 12-year-old boy, resides with his mother in the western Stockholm suburb of Blackburg. His classmates regularly bully him, and he spends his evenings imagining revenge, collecting clippings from newspapers and magazines about murders. One night, he meets Eli, who appears to be a pale girl of his age. Eli has recently moved into the next-door apartment with an older man, Hawken. Eli initially informs Oscar that they cannot be friends. Over time, however, the two begin to form a relationship and exchange Morse code messages through their adjoining wall. Eli learns that Oscar is being bullied by schoolmates and encourages him to stand up for himself. Oscar enrolls in weight training classes after school. Earlier, Hawken stops and kills a passerby on a footpath to harvest blood for Eli but is interrupted by an approaching dog walker. Eli is prompted to waylay and kill a local man, Jacques, making his way home after having said goodnight to his best friend, Lackey. A cat-loving recluse, Gosta, witnesses the attack from his flat, but in disbelief decides not to report the incident. Hawken hides Jock's body in an ice hole in the local lake. First thing, 
I probably butchered some of those names. I'm sorry, I don't speak Swedish. Let's go back, I think, in chronologically. We, t- we already mentioned how the, scene, the, the movie opens with Oscar putting his hand against the glass. He's standing there, you know, he's in his underwear. He's got the knife, and he's watching the arrival of Elay. And, like, I, I was like, thinking about how, like, opening scenes are so important, right? Opening and endings um, and anything, and books and films. So, you know, let's take, I think it's worth it to take a moment and talk about, like, what are you seeing in this opening that made the director choose to start here? Intrigue more than anything, right? Like, you, I don't know what's going on. Why is this kid naked? What is, like, you know, what is he doing in this room? He's very vulnerable. Obviously, he's also got a weapon. Um, he's looking down. I think the introduction of Eli immediately sort of is a shift in his world that he doesn't necessarily realize yet. Um, I thought it was a powerful opening scene and those big windows, those big windows with the snow coming down and the dark streets with the white snow on the ground. Like it's so striking and it's like such a powerful establishes setting, establishes setting. But like I said, for me, it's a lot of like, what is going on here? I want to know what's going on. There's enough questions that are immediately asked of the audience. I think that you're like, I gotta, I gotta kind of see what's going on here, and and that's kind of what stuck with me. Like visually, I think it establishes the visual texture of the film, right? It's sort of set up right from the beginning. But in these openings, I think like the best openings work on two levels, and one of the levels you're talking about is that like first time viewer going, what's going on here? I'm I'm intrigued. Um, this seems to be important. I don't know who this person is and like what's going on so forth. And it works in that level, but you also want it to work for repeat viewings, right? If you want to make something that is going to be like that award worthy, like, you know, really rich or whether you care about awards, but I'm talking about like, if you're wanting to make art that's on that level, that's on this like elevated level, one of the things you can do is add layers of meaning. I was also thinking about like, I know the story kind of pretty well now i've read the book a couple times and i've seen the movie a couple times and so i'm thinking about oscar and his innocence and how his innocence is laid bare in front of this you know uh desolate setting we see that he's already sort of exposed elay although they don't make eye contact or anything but there's also like a barrier between them that i think comes back a few times throughout the movie and they're establishing that here i think the the handprint the title of let the right one in there's something about like passing through barriers and choosing to let someone in. But then also like I I noticed they love to do this thing where they show the like outline of the handprint fade as it like goes cold and like whether that that's like a fate, like a loss of innocence or just like life being impermanent. Like there's so many little things you can start reading into it as you know, the story and you look back at the scene, you know, he's, he's, innocent and he's in his underwear and he's this little kid but then he also has a knife and he's violent and his violence they're showing that like there's already some potential for violence in him before he even meets Eli so it's not going to be all from Eli so we can't like lay that all at Eli's feet thinking about that handprint you know just chatting about it has made me think like what do we know about vampires vampires are typically cold and might not leave that the residual heat on the window and the fading of that and in theory they don't leave reflections i don't think we ever see a reflection of elay correct me if i'm wrong not that i can think of but i'm thinking of there are several moments where we definitely see reflections of other characters and so you're already kind of setting that up i think we may even see the reflection of oscar as he's looking in the glass so yeah, right. you're like establishing the difference between like a human who leaves a reflection and has heat and like does all this other stuff 
and and the undead. That warmth also is like humanity too, right? Like that's what it kind of means to be alive and be human. And what does it mean to be alive and to be human? Is what Elay has been forced to become considered human or or like have or some being with humanity? Is Elay a monster? You know, that's right. I think a question that the you know movie and book both continue to circle around. How you know? How do you feel about Elay? I mean, we're, I think we—that's an ongoing question we can continue to come back to. But um, I wanted to move to the next. I think like really striking scene is this uh, Hawken attacking someone on this path, and I was like, I continue to be sort of enchanted by how strange this movie can be sometimes. And one of the ways it does it is through Hawken's actions, which are simultaneously like carefully planned but also feel in so haphazard and 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 foolishly done almost like he wants to be caught in the book I felt like he was care- more careful it, it, I wasn't picturing at least him being in the broad wide open under all these like bright lights drags the guy like right off the path he, he kidnapped him at it seems like and so some other people come walking along and stumble onto him like it's so and then, like, you know, it happens later, but, like, his other his other attacks are just as bad and just as poorly executed. And Hawken is a character that has been changed quite a bit in this version. And one of the things they do, to me, is make him seem inept in a lot of ways. And his ineptitude, I think, takes away some of the um, sympathy for the devil kind of theme that I think was pretty present in the book, where Lindquist really wanted us to understand him as a character and feel some sympathy for him even as we find what he's doing abhorrent and here it the movie seems less interested in that i'm sure because of the pedophilia angle it got sort of sidestepped um but that that is an interesting thing that is that is left out of this adaptation and this version of hawken to me it i just am more comfortable with everything that happens to him because he seems like he kind of brings it onto himself He's not good at what he does. He's a fool. He has bad motivations. And I don't know. I, he's just pathetic in the movie. Like, he is scary. Don't get me wrong. To an extent. But um, this is just the the start of me going like, well, this is a very different version of Hawken because I don't know how you do this crime in this way without like having some desire to get caught. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So my read on this was he is so accustomed to killing and it felt so casual. That he was just like, I've never been caught. I've done this a million times. It was very business, right? Business-like. And he just walks up, you know, wide shot, like you said, super wide shot. He just sort of strolls up, kills the guy. You know, he's stringing him up like it's nothing, like yeah. he's killing an animal. It seems like he has nothing to live for, like he doesn't care. And and that's that's in, in contrast to the version we got in the book because the, the version we got in the book had a lot of um, mixed, like he didn't want to do this. He hated that he had to do this. He even has an argument with Elay later, which we get like a little bit of maybe they're arguing, but we don't know why in the movie. But like he deliberately says like, I do not want to do this anymore. I can't keep killing people for you, you know? And like, that's all like subtextual, I guess. And some of it might still be there, but it's not as obvious to me that Hawken doesn't want to be doing this. Did you also, I don't know if you, felt this way but for whatever reason it felt com- like dark comedically like it felt like this weird 
like the the person rolls up and he sort of runs away. Well, the dog coming up. Exactly. It felt like almost like a Coen Brothers, like like a Fargo scene or something. Right. But that's why I was saying like it's so it's so foolishly done. Like it's it almost yeah. feels like he is inept. Like he doesn't know what the hell he's doing. Yeah, it's bizarre. Very yeah. interesting. I, I couldn't really put my finger on why exactly that was the case, but but like I said, when I walked away, I felt like it was he was so cavalier. He was just like, yeah, whatever. I do this all the time. Yeah, not worried about being caught because he's done it a million times. That is frightening inherently, because he he doesn't like you think you're safe if you're in broad you know broad light and in clear view of the road. Like you could see cars driving by as he's hanging this guy from a tree under a streetlight. Like yeah, full Crazy. broad view is so wild. But that, that's kind of terrifying too because it's like. You're not safe with this guy's just gonna fucking do this and not care. All right, so there's also this moment that made me have a little like hypothetical that I want to propose. It's me, it's Luke. Go into my local bar by myself, take a seat in the corner. I order a tall glass of milk <laughs> and I just sit there, slowly drink it <laughs> quietly. It just does not sound appetizing. How many people does this freak the hell out? Like, isn't there like a history of like villains drinking milk in movies? I feel like that's a thing, right? Everyone knows that that's like serial killer behavior. Yeah, like, that's, exactly, right? Like that's like some so like what's his name from No Country for Old Men? Yeah, drinking milk. You're right. Uh, uh, sugar, sugar. Anton Sugar. Sugar. There we go. I think. But what do you think? Should I do it just to see if I get any reactions? <laughs> I mean, I, I think you should. I've been noticing. I mean, like, this is such a trope, right? Like, people who are bummed go to bars and kind of sit and just, like, order a drink and talk order to the bartender and stuff. a glass of milk. I don't know that I've ever done it by myself, like, gone in and had that really cinematic, like, low moment where I just sort of sit <laughs> at the bar by myself. But I, I want to, you know? You know why? It's fucking expensive, man. Yeah. Like, if you want to, like, sit alone and drink, like do it at home i guess but i guess the idea is that you're trying to escape your home so maybe that's why you're out there's something cinematic about it i'd want a camera to be rolling if i did it <laughs> right you gotta have like your shoulders like hunched up a little bit and like your head down a little bit and just have like your arms out wide on the bar and <laughs> drink a couple and then you just like point to the bartender point to your drink and they know you want another well that and this leads into that like or, or goes back to that point i had about how this movie's just like got some strangeness to it yeah and, like this moment strange i don't know if some of this is cultural um, or if it's just like inherent, um, but yeah, this moment's weird. Like he, everybody in the in the bar is like looking at him, like who is this fucking guy? Like, yeah, I think audiences appreciate that uniqueness, though, right? Like we don't need to see the person in the bar who's low drinking a beer. Like, do something weird and have character do something notable and different. I feel like he's very put together here. Like he looks proper, like he's a businessman or something. I don't know what <laughs> whatever that means. But like he looks, he doesn't look like schlummy and depressed, but he. He's just strange. He just kind of wanted to go out and see the local scene. Maybe you know what it is, is it's like a normal thing to do, right? Yeah. Like a, an adult would like go. But also I think he has had an argument with Eli. So there maybe is a little bit of that, like wanting to leave home. But it's also like the believability of like him, people seeing him out and about and not just like hold up in his house all the time probably gets heat off of him as like a murderer. Yeah. And the choice to give him milk and not beer just underlines that, right? Like it, this guy's weird. Look at what he's drinking. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's like he wants to stay sharp too, right? Like anything could happen at any time. Yeah, I and... guess. And then speaking of drinking too, like another scene that maybe it comes a little later, but like we see the father drinking, his friend comes over. And this is something from the book. There's like this, these themes of like alcoholism. We got a lot of alcoholic characters here. But I was just thinking about how alcohol is sort of shown in this world 
and how to me it seems like uh, it's like these people want something and so they're turning to this drink and yet it's like it's like it's a lot of like frothy beer and then vodka they're just drinking this clear i mean maybe it's schnapps or something i don't know but it's some sort of clear liquid that they're just pounding shots of and i'm just thinking about like being that cold and that and then just like your drink you turn to is just basically pure get me drunk alcohol that the thing that makes vodka good is when it has like the least amount of flavor possible essentially it, you know maybe like a big vodka drinker would disagree with me but my understanding is that you want it to taste like water as much as possible it's supposed to be colorless odorless that's and uh, tasteless that's the whole thing with vodka like pure and then like, you just fucking take shots with your buddy until you're shit faced <laughs> we know that like russians drink a lot of in the very tundra like environment they drink a lot of vodka there's like, something about just like pounding this clear liquor when you're that cold and like, I don't know, I guess, you know, it makes you feel warm. You have a good time with your buddies. Like we see them talking about how like, you know, this was the best night ever with his friend who ends up getting killed. Like, it seems like this is some of their only release in this just barren, desolate place. And it kind of explains why maybe alcoholism is a big problem in this uh, community. Yeah. It's also uh, like fairly cheap liquor. That's like, you know, so maybe socioeconomic For wise, sure. like that's why it's accessible and available. But I wanted to get into the relationship between Oscar and Eli. And you brought up the this idea of barriers, and it's got me thinking about barriers a lot in this, and specifically the way that they communicate through Morse code through the wall. And like what that means visually and what it means for their characters. And this idea of when you're growing up, maybe your first love. Primitive text messaging. <laughs> right. And and this idea when you're growing up, you ha- your first love, like you want to spend time with this person all the time. But there are like restrictions put in place by like parents and things like that. And this way that you'll find these like hidden secret moments to communicate through the wall and everything. Do you think kids still pass notes in school, like on written a little piece of paper and like, I don't know. Did you have this Probably. experience in school where like so like when I started dating, one of the things I would do with my girlfriend is we would like we had this notebook. And we would like write in like a class, you'd write like a page and then you'd hand it off. And then the next person would write during their period and then hand it off. Like, I wonder if this is still a thing. Yeah, I had that exact. We had planners like I had we like everyone was given a planner at the beginning of the year. And I remember like I using... those still exist somewhere. <laughs> yeah, Dude. And, and like writing notes and stuff. I remember like just like I had so many notes that we would write back and forth that we would just hold on to and put in a box somewhere and stuff like that kind of stuff. It is interesting because why would you send a note, a physical note when you could just send a text now and it's like not traceable? You don't have like because the other thing that would happen is occasionally you'd have a student or a teacher be like, you want to share that with the class? Yeah. Read what you just wrote. You know, I've heard horror stories of yeah. people who like having it read out in class, yeah. that kind of thing. Hand it to me. I'll read it. Yeah. I mean, I, I had I've seen it happen. And I think one time I was passing notes with a friend of mine and we had to read it out loud. But it was it ended up not being completely horrifying. But I mean, like you just have to eat it at that point. Right. Like when they're trying to take it from you, you just put it in your mouth and you're like, it's gone. Sorry. The weird thing <laughs> for me was always like I would finish my classwork immediately and then I'd have 10, 15 minutes left at the end of class and I'd be goofing off and like passing notes and shit and I'd yeah. get in trouble and they'd be like, are you done with your work? And I'd be like, yeah. <laughs> and then like that tended to take the pressure off a little bit because it was like, yeah, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, if we can circle back to those barriers, like what could they represent? Like they could represent incompatibilities. They could represent societal things that say you can't be together. They could represent differences in identity, um, incompatibilities, um, 
life. I mean, differences in generations too, right? Like this, this character is supposedly hundreds of years old as far. We don't know. I don't think we get any sort of notion in the film. Yeah. Interestingly, we don't ever get that said, which really does change things, right? Like that, that is such an important moment. I think the, the only thing we get, I mean, we're jumping ahead a little bit, but there's a, there's a couple of moments where we get a flash of an older woman in Elay's costume and in the same exact position and dre- made up to look like Elay, but it's definitely like a woman like looks like she's in her 50s or 60s. It's basically just like we see the real Elay underneath this weird layer. And that's yeah, that's what I'm assuming is like that's the real Elay. So but like and that's the thing to me that undercuts what you were saying about it being this like innocent love because if you start to imagine these scenes with this old woman yeah. cr- you know crawling into bed na- naked behind Oscar to give him a hug like it's creepy. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it's not. I think there's just less of it than in the yeah. book. Well, and, and there's definitely a situation where Elay has been fixed at a mental maturity of a 12-year-old, even as has unnaturally gone on. And, it, and that's that like whole fucked up maturity thing of youth and, you know, being yeah. too old for your age and like all this interesting stuff, you know, that is metaphorical for a lot of trauma. So one thing I want to talk about, just like a filmmaking thing that I noticed is that this filmmaker loved to have these split... I don't know what they're... There's probably a term for it. I don't know. But I, I called them like split shots where it often it would slowly pan to set them up and then you'd see something to like the right of this frame and it would be like a character entering or something. And then like to the left of the frame, there might be another character or something else going on and it would kind of be an interaction with what was under the right of frame. I'm thinking of a, a specific time where um, Hawken has... Um, attacked the one kid and he's like hanging upside down and then we see Hawken on the left of frame he's like sitting in the shower and like listening and then you see all the other kids coming in on the right but it does this a few different times and I thought it was a cool effect um, I don't know what that's called but it just it just was again like there was these interesting visuals to watch yeah I don't know that there's a name for that specifically, but I what a what they're doing is basically they're effectively having two different rooms in the same scene and that depth in the frame is I think anytime you can add more depth in your frame, depending on what you're trying to get across, it's going to make it look more visually interesting. Normally, I feel like they'd cut between those two, right? Like you cut to them on the, you know, this left scene, then you cut to the right and you cut back and forth. Instead, you have them both in one and it, and it holds. Yeah, this gets into like composition theory, too, because it's like. I mean, this goes on and on, but we'll just keep it simple and talk about like the rule of thirds. Most people have heard of the rule of thirds. You've seen the grid and this idea of like there's a third of the screen on the left side. There's a third in the middle. There's a third on the right. And what you do in each of those three thirds can can sort of add texture to your frame. So if this shot that you're talking about where Hawken is in the far left, he's like sort of in darkness. And then we've got the middle, which is like space where the wall is blocking. And then we see the third, I think the other third was like the doorway, right? So you could see like the impending threat for Hawken as well. For sure, absolutely that. And he's sitting there and you're seeing his reaction as he's listening and realizing he's fucked. Yeah, and he'd also just picked up the hydrochloric acid or whatever Which it is. Which he spilled? Like, this is, again, like, he's so bumbling. He can't even do this right. And at one point he says, what am I good for? What else am I good for to, to Elay? And I'm like, yeah, dude, you're not really worth anything. <laughs> like, he's yeah. he's really bad at what he does, it seems like to me. Yeah, like I said, I think he just gets complacent a little bit. He thinks that it's easy and it's like... Um, cause there's so many other ways. Why doesn't he take the, like kidnap the person and take them to the house or something? He doesn't do anything. He just attacks them in the middle of public with like b- multiple people around. 
And he stood outside that window staring at them, <laughs> staring at the kids playing basketball. Like, he just it does everything out in the open and not, like, smart at all. So I, I have very little sympathy for him in general and, and none in the movie. <laughs> yeah. So because he keeps fucking up, Eli has to go and actually kill someone and drink their blood because he can't get it done. So Eli goes out there, kills this guy, and is seen by the, the cat. Uh, owner Gosta or Gosta whatever his name is in a harrowing scene and also you know the vampire scene the vampire attack that we knew was coming when you when you get the idea of a vampire in a film um, I, I read that several tricks were used to create the right sound effects for some of these scenes and biting into sausages was used to replicate biting into skin and flesh that makes sense because you kind of got to break that outer layer right yeah. the foley that work that they're doing and then drinking of the blood was uh, yogurt <laughs> People, someone was drinking yogurt because it's get that. an exaggerated sound, and it's the thicker viscosity and everything. Well, that's what I'm talking about. When we're talking about like the craftsmanship that goes into these things that people don't even realize. Yeah, I, sound design is, is incredibly uh, interesting, obviously. And then uh, apparently, this is the one that really threw me. They even went as far as to make the sound of children blinking for some of the scenes where it's very intimate and they're close to each other for Eli and, and Oscar. And they used grapes, the skin of grapes rubbing together for the Whoa. The, the sound of, of <laughs> blinking. Blink. That's bizarre. Maybe that's like, y'all know, industry standard, but like that seems weird to me. Maybe. I've never heard of it, but that's, ama- that's amazing. Okay, that's probably way. not. Then. <laughs> I also, you know, with this blood theme throughout, we had already mentioned there's not much color in this film other than the times that there is. So there, it's a lot of white and gray and stark black and things like that. And then... Uh, every once in a while, you'll see red. Yep. And it tends to be very important, which is true in all movies, but definitely in this movie. Red. Right. Like how many times have we talked about like different films where those the color themes are definitely trying to co- convey something to the audience. And here uh, I you know, read and also saw quite a bit of uh, the color red being popping up throughout in people's jackets or neon signs like things throughout scenes i got one that was uh notably red i think and that's this random stick that hawken picks up to push the body so he's disposing of the body of the man that elay killed and again hawken is i don't know he just decides he's gonna dump this body unweighted into this water and then it just floats there and he's like well i'll get this stick and i'll just push it with a stick (laughs) and then, then we cut away from it (laughs) <laughs> yep. I think he was just trying to get it under the ice layer. Well, I assume, but still, it just like, I don't know. It just didn't seem like the best plan. And sure enough, the body gets found, right? But um, importantly, that stick comes back. And I actually really liked the visual clue of like it being a red stick. So we remember, theoretically, that that was the same stick. And why why do that? What is that? What is the point of that? I think it ties Hawken and Oscar together as characters a little bit it's like a passing on of this role he passes on his red stick to he oscar. passes on his red stick and and oscar uses it to hit his bully so there's a power it gives him but also it's it's like violence it's the the things he's going to have to do if this is the life he chooses and that passing on of a role i don't know like I guess I, I was thinking, like I'm remembering way back to when I originally saw the movie before I read the book, I was thinking about that, like, the trickiness of Oscar is sort of inheriting Hawkins' role, but I think that was a lot clearer in the book, and now going back to it, it's a lot clearer to me watching it. Um, and this is, a, I think, a visual 
connection. But I do think a lot of people who just watch it for the first time might not be thinking about that complexity. And maybe it's there to be found, but like maybe it's more of like a second viewing or when you come back to it and think about it later, like, oh, because I, I agree that this movie like almost leaves you feeling more happy. I mean, it leaves on like a happy note for Oscar. And I can see just like taking that at face level and being like, yeah, this is great. Happy ending for Oscar. Happy ending to this horror movie. But I keep feeling like this is not a happy ending, really. This is a, he's going to be a serial killer. And, you know, OK, maybe that's, you know, maybe that's OK for him. That's what he wants. But like, there's a lot of violence in this future, I think. Yeah, it's dark and twisted. It's yeah. not just like some clean, happy ending, right. which is good. We want that kind of weird ambiguity, something unique and different in our storytelling. Yeah, I, this is not a criticism. I think it's cool. Right. <laughs> I just picking up on it. But I, I do still maintain that the it's the it's if that is the case it's much less important to the, the story overall i think that the filmmaker's intention here and i think getting a second stab at it not to say that that lindquist wanted to change his story in any way but in in adapting it i think they realized like the the core story that they did want to tell was one more of like exploration and love and like what that mean how how that can be unconventional and different and you know some of those kinds of things so we have already talked about some of this stuff, but I'm going to read this next section here. Hawken makes another effort to obtain blood for Eli by trapping a teenage boy in a changing room after school. When he is about to be discovered by the boy's friends, Hawken pours concentrated hydrochloric acid on his own face, disfiguring it to prevent the authorities from identifying him. Eli visits Hawken in the hospital. Hawken offers his neck to Eli for feeding, and Eli drains him of his blood. Eli goes to Oscar's apartment and spends the night with him, during which time they agree to go steady, though Eli states, I'm not a girl. During an ice skating field trip at the lake, some of Oscar's fellow students discover Jacques' body. At the same time, the bullies again harass Oscar, who hits their leader, Connie, in the head with a metal pole, splitting his ear. Sometime later, unaware that Eli is a vampire, Oscar suggests that he and Eli form a blood bond and cuts his own hand, asking Eli to do the same. Eli, thirsting for blood, but not wanting to harm Oscar, laps up the blood before running away. Black's girlfriend, Virginia, is subsequently attacked by Eli. Virginia survives, but discovers that she has become painfully sensitive to sunlight. Virginia visits Gosta, only to be fiercely attacked by Gosta's cats. Soon after this, Oscar confronts Eli, who admits to being a vampire. Oscar is initially upset by Eli's need to kill people for survival. However, Eli insists they are alike in, the, in that Oscar wants to kill and Eli needs to kill and encourages Oscar to be me for a little while. So Hawken, it says he burns himself to make it so he can't be identified by police, and that is from the book. However, he botches it so badly here, he only burns half his face, so he, he can't even do that right. Like, So it makes it feel like he's he's done this to himself for no real reason. Like, it doesn't do any good. Um, looks horrific, by the way, Some some really... This movie doesn't have a ton of visual effects, but when they're used, you know, whether that's makeup or actual graphic design, you know, computer graphics or whatever, like, I think it it really holds up. It looks good. Um, there's a few occasions where I'm like, you know, with the cats, there's a couple of times where I'm like, yeah, this is, hasn't held up super well, but like, it's tough. Can I just say that I was shocked that that scene made it. Of all the scenes to make it into the film, the cats attacking Virginia was so funny to see in in like live action like it this. It was weird because it went from like funny and kind of goofy looking to actually being kind of horrific to me. Yes. Yeah. When 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 uh, Virginia is like in the stairwell and just like the the sound of the cats attacking and the just the sheer number of them and how ferociously they're biting her and then she falls on the stairs like that was actually pretty horrifying. 
imagining what that would feel like I'm getting bitten by a thousand and plus I'd be so allergic <laughs> this character has barely come to grips with the fact that they're a vampire yeah and and then like all these cats and like I, I guess I kind of knew that that was a that was a vampire sort of story like cats will hiss at vampires and stuff in movies but yeah never seen it like this before this is really played up yeah made it a little more violent um, in, in a way that fits with everything yeah that was that was a cool moment I do think Virginia's story is is like it's good. It's interesting in the movie. I preferred the book version because we got more of it. It's a really interesting. This goes really fast, right? In the film, it just flies by and you're like, it, it's interesting. You, we don't get the same context because we don't have a lot of context for Elay's backstory because in the in the book, we got that. And then we get Virginia's story sort of telling us what that may have been like for Elay. And here it's kind of just to show what can happen if Elay doesn't fully like finished killing someone and this this like horrible thing that can that can happen to them yeah well in this it, it does sort of highlight a little bit of the infection and how it was passed but and how Eli was turned well and i guess virginia ultimately still makes the same decision as, as she did in the in the book which is the noble sort of sacrifice that instead of hurting other people you choose to die yeah no that and that is noble i guess i just um didn't feel like i understood it as much um, for her, we didn't see her drinking her own blood. We saw her like smell her own blood, but that was, I don't know. We didn't see the desperation. I think that was really conveyed in the novel. That was, you know, very interesting. I really liked that, that sequence in the novel. Um, still pretty good here. So another thing to touch on is Hawk and the change. So I was right. Um, I, I didn't remember the extra moment we get in the book or, you know, series of scenes where Hawken has fallen out of the window and yet still is not dead and sort of reanimates in the morgue and then comes after um, Elay. Uh, that is all cut here. He hits the ground and, and p- apparently dies, um, falls out the window still. Um, now, this was a cool sequence. Don't get me wrong. I, li- I liked the, uh, Elay coming in out of the snow and the nurse that's all right out of the book, like running out and coming. And then I thought it was a really cool uh, trick where uh, you don't really see, like I was looking, so I ended up spotting eventually where Eli was upon the wall. But when the first time you're watching this movie, you have you don't know that this is happening, so you don't you probably don't see Eli up there. And then all of a sudden, it starts moving up the wall, scampers like that. It's like, it's like yeah. spotting a spider or something. You're like, oh shit! There's just a couple of like this, and then like one of the last scenes in the film that like show Eli's abilities in in ways and but doesn't go as far as to make it like oh look how cool or anything like that it's kind of just like a, an, an ability that exists that we are expecting to see in a vampire film but isn't like played up to be sort of an action scene or anything like that it's yeah it it's, it is it's like i mean it's occurring out of the main like focus of the frame here and and it's like not the point of it yet that makes it even mm-hmm. creepier that it's happening like that way very cool um, so yeah, uh, we get the, we get the hand slash moment, which like, we've talked about this. I think we talked about an it. We've talked about it <laughs> many times. Do not slash your fucking palm open. He's a kid. So I understand maybe he's mimicking the movies he's seen, but like if you're a kid out there and you're thinking about doing it, don't do the palm. That's that motherfucker is going to hurt for a month. Like it's going to be a problem. You're not going to be able to like grab thi- like do the back of your arm or something like find an area out of the way. If you're going to do this. I don't, re- I don't, I don't recommend you do, but don't do your palm. Also, don't mix blood with people. Yeah, probably not a good <laughs> in idea. General. Yeah, it's a good way to get vampirism among other Apparently. other <laughs> diseases. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, this whole sequence I thought was cool. This is where we first see the flash of the older woman in Elay's costuming, and it happens so quickly that I, like, I don't, I think I caught it the first time, but like, you could be forgiven if you miss it. Um, it is subtle. It's not yeah. like this, like, like flash transition. It's just like a. There's clearly another actor, or they put older makeup on this character. On I this think actor. it's another actor because I went back and looked at it again. Like I went back and paused it to like actually see what I was seeing, and I think it is a different person. But they're wearing exactly the same outfit. They're in the exact same position. They have all the makeup the same. So they did everything they could to be like this is the same person, but just you're seeing the older woman within. So one thing I did say last week that I I do want to walk back a little bit. I was remembering our commentary and I said something about like how Elay is not a victim here. And while that's somewhat true in the current situation, if you look at it in the grand scope of things, of course Elay is a victim. And was, you know, it, it, the process of being turned was victimized. Well, you talked about it last week, how it's like not, it's a, you know, it's a non-consensual act that someone makes you a vampire. And that was something that was done to Elay. Um, right. So, yes, Elay is a victim. Every, like, it's, it's, it's complicated. Like, everybody's a victim here in, in some sense, it feels like. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and using each other. Um, so it's messy. I wanted to ask you about what you think Eli meant with um, Be Me for a little while. Yeah, that was interesting because I felt like this was like a holdover from the book a little bit because in the book, Oscar literally gets visions of Eli's past and sees what happened and how Eli was turned and castrated and all this other stuff. That doesn't occur in the movie. So I thought it was an interesting, interesting thing to say. Yeah, I guess I... I was too caught up on what happened in the book and I was thinking like it was a weird holdover, but like, did you read something else from it? I I mean like this idea that Eli has to kill Oscar kind of wants to kill, but hasn't done it and doesn't understand what it means to actually kill. He thinks he does. Yeah. He thinks he wants to. So I, I almost feel like Eli is either saying like, give into your baser instincts and be like me or be like me, like see what it does to me to kill someone and and like understand that and realize that's not actually what you want. And the killing might not be exactly what you want. It's more just like getting revenge on these bullies and things like that. But then ultimately she, you know, we'll get to it, kills everyone. So I, I guess I'm not sure exactly where you're supposed to land with that. So one other moment I want to talk about um, that I thought was a cool bit of filmmaking was this establishing shot almost that gets made of the morning and how it shows all that frozen ice in the trees and it's like shining and glimmering. And there's this moment of beauty, even among all this desolation. And yet it's still very cold beauty and it's shown and it's, and it's right before we get the scene of, uh, I think Virginia is her name, uh, waking up and getting burned by the sun and it serves a couple purposes. Like for one, it's just establishing like, yeah, there's a bright sun right now. It's morning. But also I think it shows some of the like loss of what is going to be taken away. Because like I was thinking like, oh, that's really pretty. That's cool how you can see that. And then I'm like the immediate thing we're getting is a character who will no longer be able to view that. Um, so, I, you know, it's again, it's just a quiet little moment and it goes by briefly and you could definitely miss it. But I thought it was cool. I thought it, it, it all fit the story being told. You also have to think of the perspective of like the juxtaposition of this film is almost entirely at night. Yeah. 
and a lot of the major scenes take place at night and then we get a, a shining moment of the sun rising and it's like that new day and there's maybe a sense of safety in the day if you're worried about a serial killer or a vampire out on the loose yeah i think we it's funny because the filmmakers make us at least me when i watch the film hate the sun i'm like oh no like you know there's a character that we care about or are invested in that that you know needs to stay away from the sun so they're also building up for the later scene that comes up here soon where um i think his name is Locke tracks down eli the eruption of fire in the hospital room i thought looked amazing it, it was like um it looked like a person actually being caught on fire but i assume it was like a was like a dummy at one point or they swapped it or something but it looked really good and the way the fire actually just like burst out and went up the went up into the ceiling and we have other characters looking at the bed i don't know i thought that was a really striking sequence yeah yeah great shot um they they're like freaking out too in this like pretty pretty wide shot where they're like the flames are like normally you would ex- expect something like this to get smaller as it burns up but the flames are getting bigger and bigger yeah it's like exploding out of the out of the body yeah uh, which also like highlights what would happen to Eli I'm sure um and then and then the other one I wanted to talk about was that moment where we see the hit on the bully and I thought it was notable I think this is out of the book too but it, it visually and 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 everything it really stood out to me when Oscar is getting beat with a stick early in the film, he takes it silently and he sort of grits his teeth through it and he even gets hit in the face and he doesn't really react. The bully gets hit in the in the side of the head once and it's kind of like this weird, like awkward shot where it just has the stick and he's like, you're not going to hit me. And then you just see like whack, right? Like just this is like whack to the side of the head. And then I think it's notable that the bully falls to his knees and wails, absolutely like ear splitting wail. And I, I, I thought something was being said there, right? Where they like, you know, yeah, like the toughness that, you know, is, is unfortunately hard earned, but like versus the bully who actually doesn't have any toughness, it's all fake, right? As soon as somebody hits him. That's what happens. Yeah, and that's part of the course with bullies. We all yeah. know that. Like standing up to a bully typically like is not something they're used to and it yeah. tends to But much like in Stephen King books, <laughs> um, sometimes there's a bigger bully behind the previous bully, or yep. your average bully might back down, but sometimes you'll hit a bully that is exceptionally like dark and twisted and maybe a little bit insane. And that one you push hard enough and they're just gonna come back even crazier. And come and like literally almost kill you um, is what we often see in these these kind of stories. And that's kind of what we get here through this brother character who gets brought in, who's maybe even crazier and like uh, bullying the bully himself, it seems like. And is, you know, so it, that, it sets up what happens later in an interesting way. But also, yeah, as it is this moment, I think it, it is cool. Um, so after the hospital, Elay and Oscar meet in Elay's uh, apartment and we get another scene of um, this glass separating them and so this is like foyer area they come in and then Eli backs through a door and closes it in front of uh, Oscar and then they put their hands up against the glass and they're having this conversation through the glass and I thought that, like that that was again like coming back to that motif of the barriers and then also um that that is sort of mirrored and and echoed in the literal barrier, or I guess maybe not literal is not the right word here. 
there's like a metaphysical barrier that is shown when um, Ile has to welcome Oscar in, has to invite Oscar in. And we see uh, that he even says, like, is there something physically stopping you from coming in? And it's, it, that just made me think of these doors and this glass. And I right. think it's all talking about the same stuff here. I mean, it's literally the film's called Let the Right One In also. Right, yeah. So, it, we're, we, you know, it's smartly done. Um, we do get a diegetic sound moment where we get a little literal di- uh, needle drop on a record. And it's like, it's actually, this happens twice. I'm thinking of another time later, but like both times are interesting, right? And we get this like happy moment of like both times the music really goes against what we're seeing, um, and and is a surprising moment. And and again, this whole sequence here, I think, um, unless I'm confusing it with a later sequence, but there's one moment where Eli is wearing the super red shirt, and I think again is like a, it's very passionate. It's like showing this warmth, but also this violence and this blood, and all of that's wrapped up in it. Speaking of Eli wearing the red dress thing, we there's a choice was made to show Eli's a quick flash of Eli's genitals, which I thought was shocking. Well, lack of genitals, I guess. There's like a scar. There's like a scar or a wound there. Yeah, it was shocking. I read that that was a dummy, which makes a lot of yeah. sense, obviously, when they filmed it. Um, that's a really bold decision, and I don't know that an American filmmaker would do that. I think that... Is that is that omitted from Matt Reeves' film? I can't remember. I, I would assume so, but also just on top of that, like, there's, you know, we've talked in the past about, like, nudity and, like, how that's more seen as more natural, and there's some... I think American audiences, and honestly, in general, just American film tends to shy away from that kind of... I remember being really confused when I saw this because it's like there's this reference to her saying I'm not a girl and then we see this wound and it's like oh is you know something been done to, to her or I don't know I don't even know what I just saw cuz it is just like a flash um and it's yeah it's really kind of upsetting and happen I don't know it's a very strange moment makes more sense in the book cuz it gets it gets explained a little bit right it's trying to reference the book yeah. and and i yeah it's kind of just like a flash yeah. in the film and i think most people are probably just like whoa it's like haunting though because you don't know what it means right i i there's something else that i meant to mention with uh eli earlier and that's that they actually redubbed all of eli's lines with a different actor really because uh they wanted the the voice to sound deeper and more threatening i guess interesting and so they had someone dub over so that's not her voice the actor's voice through the whole film okay i mean so maybe if i like spoke the language i would be able to catch that better but i'm too busy reading the subtitles so i couldn't really tell <laughs> right i think it's i think it's that this this actor is clearly young and they wanted it to have more like gravitas and weight and like ancient sort of older person in comparison to like a child a child's voice kind of thing Getting into the last bit of the plot here. In the hospital, Virginia asks an orderly to open the blinds in her room. When the sunlight streams in, Virginia bursts into flames. Locke traces Eli down to the apartment. Breaking in, he discovers Eli asleep in the bathtub. He prepares to kill Eli, but Oscar interferes. Eli wakes up, jumps on Lackey, and feeds on his blood, killing him. Eli thanks Oscar and kisses him. However, an upstairs neighbor is angrily knocking on the ceiling due to the disturbance. Eli realizes that it is not safe to stay and leaves that night. The next morning, Oscar is at the after-school fitness program at the local swimming pool. The bullies, led by Connie and his older brother Jimmy, start a fire to draw Mr. Avila, the supervising teacher, outside. They enter the pool area and order the children, aside from Oscar, to clear out. 
Jimmy forces Oscar underwater, threatening to stab his eyes out if he does not hold his breath for three minutes. While Oscar is being held underwater, Eli arrives and rescues him by killing and dismembering the bullies, except for the most reluctant of their number, Andreas, who is left sobbing on the bench. Later, Oscar is traveling on a train with Eli in a box beside him. From inside, Eli taps the word kiss to Oscar in Morse code, to which he taps back small kiss. Oh, I didn't know that. That wasn't in my subtitles. Yeah, so that's interesting. I, I guess they somebody just decoded the Morse code. Interesting. Um, okay, so yeah, let's let's circle back to the moment where uh, Lackey um, shows up at the apartment. So so this has been set up with all these interactions we're talking about and these reveals and like Oscar now understands that Eli Eli is a vampire and has like kind of come to grips with that. They've had arguments about it. Um, anyway, Lackey comes in and then Oscar hides in like a cool sequence where we see him like hiding under a table and then we get, there's like a moment where he's in a reflection of a mirror. We get a lot of like interesting filmmaking going on. He slowly reveals Eli to be in the tub. Interestingly, like very like wrapped up in, in, in a bunch of blankets and stuff. Whereas I think in the book, uh, Eli like literally sleeps in a pool of blood. Yeah, I think so. So very different. But then I think it's important to note that Oscar like interrupts and he comes in with the knife and it seems like he thinks he's going to stab the guy, but he like loses his nerve and then he witnesses, he, he does save Elay, but Elay's the one who commits the violence and, and bites him. And I think Oscar loses his stomach for it a little bit here. He's like, I don't know if this is what I'm signing up for. And I think it, it takes what follows, I think, to sell him. But well, he's not sold here. And, um, in fact, this is pretty distasteful to him. And, you know, honestly, Lackey didn't really deserve it. The guy, you know, you know, he was going after the vampire that had killed his girlfriend slash wife or whatever and his best friend. And that comes down to survival again, right? Like he was going to kill, he was going to kill Eli. So it's what, 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 you know, Eli killed to survive in the first place and then it's going to be killed. So that, you know, the filmmakers are really trying to get us on Eli's side to be like, all right, at least that guy's dead now. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's kind of like um it's kind of like Walter White in a sense in the sense that like the like when you're watching Breaking Bad, it's clear that the show wants you to feel all the sympathy for him, but like sometimes like the, on like a second viewing or as you think about it, you feel less empathy for him. And that's how I feel about Eli here. Like the movie wants me to empathize with Eli and feel like Eli is a good force for Oscar, but I'm having trouble getting there now that the more I watch it. I don't think we finished this film feeling like this is a hero, right? right? Like it's a hero to Oscar because he's, you know, being bullied and drowned and all of this. But this, this isn't, it's not your typical what, you know. Yeah. Although I do think some people are like cheering at the end, you know, because you see the bullies get their comeuppance, you know, pretty brutal comeuppance, but they do. I mean, let's talk about that because that's really the only other scene to talk about. Yeah. Well, first off, bloody kiss. This bloody kiss is... No, thank you. Uh, do not. Yeah, I'm not interested in that. I guess, uh, you know, metaphorically, the sharing of this other person's blood is pretty dark. But um, yeah, I would uh, say uh, go ahead and wash your mouth out first before you get over here. <laughs> yeah. So this the scene at the pool, um, this scene by far is the scene that stands out in my memory before amazing, I watched this. Amazing sequence. It, it stood out to me. I remembered when we were reading the story, how, how this played out. It's not there in the book. Like, it, this is all referred to later. It, like, flashes right. forward and then talks about some stuff that went down. And, like, to take a scene that was basically skipped over and make it the climactic moment and the most iconic scene from this entire movie, in my opinion, is 
cool decision. There's still a little bit of removal in the scene though, right? Like we're still not seeing it all happen. And I think that that, not only did that save them on budget, but that made for such a memorable, cool, interesting, creative way to film something like that. Let's set it up before we get to the actual moment. So one of the things I wanted to talk about was they've set up throughout, because I was wondering like, why does Oscar look like he's like literally drowning every time he's trying to swim? <laughs> I don't know if you noticed this. Then I'm like, oh, he probably doesn't swim much as a class. So I think the implication is being set up that like Oscar does not really know how to swim because every time he's in the pool, he's like paddling water and his mouth is so open. He's just like, he looks like he's just swallowing pool water, which I'm like, not a good idea, dude. People pee in that (laughs) all the time. Um, Anyway, and so it just doesn't feel like he's a very capable swimmer. And I'm like, why are they setting this up? And I'm like, oh, I realize, of course, later, because he's in this massive pool. And like, you'd think like, why not just swim away? But then like, as we've seen this set up all along, you're like, yeah, he probably can't. He probably can't come out of the shallow end. He's not very, you know, capable. But the moment of diegetic sound that I wanted to talk about here was really cool because all the kids get sent out and there's this like radio playing. And it's been playing the music that the coach had on. And it's this very like upbeat 80s tune. The bully literally looks over at the other kid and is like, get rid of that. And like he kicks it into the water. And when he does, all of a sudden, all the score and all the music and everything drops out. And all of a sudden now the scene is silent. And that to me made it so ominous. Like all of a sudden you are faced with the danger and there's nothing left of the like safety that once was of the scene has now been shattered. So I thought that was really effective. Again, use of like in scene sound to do that. Cause you could have just done that with the score, but instead you have a radio that gets, gets literally kicked into the pool. And it sets up for what I think is like a really strong decision. And that's, you're getting the underwater sound after that. We're getting a character who gets his face pushed underwater and he's down there. And I don't know about you, but every time there's like a like a breathing scene where someone's about to have to like hold their breath, I always feel like I need to do the same. So I try to hold oh, my breath and the then. person's like three minutes and I'm like, no, there's no yeah. way. Give me like 20 seconds in and I'm like, <gasps> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, uh, but yeah, such a cool sequence. And like, it's interesting to me that Oscar sort of goes into this like meditative state and too much, so much so that Eli has to pull him out. What I don't know. Like I, I feel like I was expecting him to to struggle more, but he doesn't. He's like given over to this moment. Like I think he thinks he's gonna die, um, and he's he's sort of just given up, and he's and he's literally saved by Eli. So I guess I guess that's what that's saying. But like, man, what a way to show that. Like, can we just talk about the legs? You're in, you're underwater, and you know what it looks like? It looks like you're looking through a mirror. Like, you can't see what's happening above. There's a barrier. You can't see what's happening above the water. And then all of a sudden, these legs dip into the water and then gets dragged the entire length of the pool. And then a head gets pulled out, and then, like, a head comes flying in. And, like, that is such a cool fucking sequence. Like, so clever. And I think it's done practically. Like, you just have the kid, like, you, you know, you drag across the, the pool kicking his legs. Um, looks amazing and is so memorable. Totally agree. I mean, it's the it's like I said, this the scene that I remembered from it having showing less and and in that way, kind of referencing the film because it's still removed. We still don't know what's going on up above, but it's it's a, so effective and being super creepy. Still not showing like I talked about before. Still not showing Eli's true abilities, sort of shielded from us. It's not meant to be this cool thing. That's like, oh, we're supposed to love vampires because they have superpowers. It's like this like dark moment where a bunch of kids are being torn apart by like a literally an animal at that point. 
Um, but because of the lens and the perspective that the filmmakers have set up, we're buying into it and we're like, oh, this is awesome. And then just obviously from like a craft perspective, it's amazing. It's the, the decision to go underwater, have all the body parts fall in, like you said, it's, it's awesome and more effective than I think they probably could have pulled off in if they had shown the entire fight scene because, you know, we've talked so many times about how like if you if you, of course you want to show the audience instead of telling them what happens and that's like a big thing in filmmaking and and storytelling in general well, just try and imagine this little kid flying around doing like it's gonna look a little hokey and yet but like this lets your imagination fill in those blanks and um you know much in the way that like a book does it's really cool how you're able to I am able to imagine shit that's way more horrific than what I, you know would probably be able to be captured if you were to try and show it Exactly. Works. So it works for that reason, for sure. And I thought it was a really interesting moment to have the one kid who's like sobbing in the stand still be there. Um, there is like a it's like he's kind of a witness to what happened and he's left. And like there's there's so much like carnage that has like played out all around the pool in this final, like, I guess, second to final scene. Um, it's an interesting moment. The uh, implication for me, again, comes down to the, like the reference from the book. The reason that kid's still there is because that's the kid who let Eli in. Oh, interesting. Yeah, someone had to let Eli into the building. Well, we didn't we didn't hear that. It's off screen. Yeah, I feel like that that's more made more clear. But we're here maybe because it's a public space. I, I was curious about how that worked. But like, right, because we just hear noises off like when he's underwater. And we hear like shouting and then we hear like a tussle and then we hear screaming and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. Like, I think you hear glass break maybe. Maybe it comes in through the window, something like that. I'm not sure. I'm not yeah. Sure. In the book, I remember them saying like Eli sort of like taps on the glass and calls someone over. Like who's to say that wasn't happening the whole time that he was being bullied? Yeah. Yeah, could be. And then we get that final sequence again. He's on the train. I didn't remember this. I didn't know that it would made it into the movie, but it does. You know, we end on a moment where Oscar looks like happy and in love and he's got this box, you know, and it's like almost like a sweet, tender moment. And, you know, we've talked at length now about how like the movie tends to make you want to feel. But then like on the second thought, I think you might feel differently. So I think that's cool. I think that's a, a cool way to make a movie. And I think it does work. Well, and I think that that was the the filmmaker at least planning the flag and saying like this is where the movie ends for me, because if you don't have that scene, if you don't have that final scene and just leave it at the attack, then it's way more ambiguous. And you're like, whoa, so what what happens from here? This clearly, like you said, shows a happy Oscar. Who knows if he if he's even like understood what he has coming in his future. But currently, it's a happy ending. Yeah. All right, man. So I think we got to wrap this project up by taking our vote of what we prefer, the book or the movie. Uh, do you want to go first? Sure. Yeah. It's a little tough. I thought that the story in the book was incredible. Um, I thought that it took some really dark chances and went to some places that not a lot would go. And in a horror story that's trying to like break new ground like that, I think it's worthwhile for for myself and my sensibilities but uh i also am in looking at this film especially on like this, another rewatch years and years later this film it does something wholly unique as well it's like there's not a film like this out there i can't think of anything that it's similar to it is expert filmmaking from uh an international filmmaker that that like broke into the industry in a way that not a lot of people i think saw coming and 
the acting performances like these these performances that you get out of these kids is amazing we didn't even mention how these they're so young and yet they're giving fantastic performances especially eli the the actor who plays eli it's just amazing both of them honestly oscar's really good too just being this awkward strange kid and uh i like most of the changes they made i think that they're improvements in in ways i think that it sort of gets to the heart of the story do i think that some of the like we lost some of the lore for sure we didn't we don't have the background of elay which i really enjoyed the other stuff with virginia i think like helps to really flesh out the world and understand what it's some like of my to favorite be. moments from the book yeah but overall the cuts that they made i felt like i think i even mentioned in our last episode i felt like there was a lot of excessiveness in in the book to where it was like we were getting so close point of view from a pedophile and it was meant to be off-putting, but for me, I was also kind of like, what is this? Uh, other than the, like, it comes back around, I guess, with Hawken in the way that he, like, comes after and captures Eli at the end in the book. But it, it felt, like, a little excessive to me. And I think that, like, the cuts made it more refined. And, and I so in this case, I'm going to take the movie. Okay. Yeah, this movie is very good. You know, I think I've just spent this whole episode talking about how much I like it. I think there's a lot of cool metaphors uh, being set up with these barriers, the the, the, the look and feel consistent throughout, um, you know, subtle use of effects that work really well, hold up to this day. Um, the book, you know, uh, it reminds me of Stephen King, one of my favorite authors, um, well, you know, very important for this podcast. Um, I really enjoy reading it uh, closely, and you know I think it is a risky book in so many ways, and it's trying so many things that are, you know, really beyond the pale, and it pushes the envelope. Um, and I have a lot of respect for it for doing that. Um, a lot of cool techniques used where you're like blending reality and what's not. We got a squirrel POV. We got a squirrel POV. You know, a lot of good stuff in the book as well. Um, so this one was really tough for me. And I honestly was was on the fence for a while, but I think I made the decision last night. The more I was thinking about the movie, I'm going to go with the movie as well. I'm going to agree with you um, because of everything I've been talking about. I think it, like if you're reading between the lines, you can tell like I find this movie to be really rich. And I really like the experience of reading the book and watching it because I think each one informs the other in a, in a really interesting way. So if you're a big fan of this movie, I do recommend the book because I think you will get more out of it after having read the book. Um, but ultimately like the the artistry on display, the cinematography, the, it's that kind of filmmaking I really like. It captures a time and place that I'm not used to seeing. There's just so much for me to like here. Um, and it is, like you said, a really unique experience. This is a cool movie. Um, so shout out to our patrons for choosing it as our, as our quarterly project, because it was a good one. And it sounds like we're in agreement. Uh, the, the movie takes it here. If you'd like to hear us talk about the Matt Reeves film, let us know. That can be one of our bonus episodes. Which leads me to saying, if you'd like to support this podcast monetarily, we have a Patreon where you can not only vote on quarterly projects, um, you can also get our monthly bonus episodes where we talk about other adaptations, alternate adaptations, like the Matt Reeves version of this film will be one I, I think at, at some point in the future we will get to. Yeah, I mean, I'd really like to. With with this so fresh, I'd love to do it in the next couple months um, just to be able to compare and contrast and see what we liked. Uh, I like Matt Reeves as the director, so I assume he made some some bold and, and good changes as well. So I'd like to revisit yeah. and see see what that's like. Also, follow this podcast on whatever social media platforms you're on, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Also, we're on TikTok. Basically, anywhere you look, you can find us online. At Ink to Film on all of those. 
by the way. Uh, also, uh, that's if if you wanted to find me at Worldcon, go to at Luminous Luke. That's my Twitter account, and I'm sure I'll be uh, commenting on there. Um, and you can let me know you're there or what have you, and we can you know meet up, and I can give you some uh, give you some ink to film swag. If you like this episode, another fantastic way to show us is to leave us a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. Let us know you listened to our Let the Right One In coverage. Let us know um, what you liked about it. And, you know, that would be an awesome review that would help us get the word out for this podcast, which continues to be, you know, word of mouth continues to be the best way to do that. And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, that's going to be it for Let the Right One In. We have now finally tackled this project that honestly has been on our list for a long time. I remember I put that on our list like when we started out. That was one that I had been looking at as a potential cover. So I'm glad we finally got to it. So again, shout out to our community for choosing that. Um, we normally would announce our next project here, but because I am going to Worldcon, we're going to be taking a week off. And there's a little bit of uncertainty about when we're going to start The Hobbit. Now, The Hobbit is coming. Uh, it'll either be next or it'll be like we'll have one other thing. So anyway, that's what you can look forward to. Um, if you're a fan of The Hobbit, you know, it will be coming soon. Maybe we'll have something in between. I guess stay tuned. Um, and until next time, keep adapting. Keep adapting.